We have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. It is in our hands. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour podcast. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to their elders, past, present, and those that will earn that great honour in the future. We acknowledge that we're broadcasting from stolen land. It always was, and it always will be, Aboriginal land. We also would like to acknowledge the incredible ancient wisdom that has been derived from many millennia of nurturing the land and their communities. And we have so much to learn from that as we face up to the multiple crisis in the world at the moment. It's World Water Day. Oh well, what's that got to do with me, you might be saying? What difference will it make, really, if, if I make a bit of change, you know, with my water behavior, like collecting rainwater or something, using less water in the shower? But, first of all, World Water Day is about a lot more than that. And secondly, small changes, as we know, become big and can have an impact. It's just about when a lot of people do them, when we all agree that this is something we need to do. And it can be beneficial for other reasons too, because for instance, there's that advice, when we've been boiling our potatoes or vegetables and so on, instead of throwing that water out in the sink, you could let it cool down and then use the water for your plants in the garden, because the plants will love it. It's full of nutrients. And the World Water Day is actually a lot about food. It's about buying local food, it's about growing your own food, even planting trees. It's about eating what's in season instead of having something that's flown in from somewhere else. It's about eating more fresh food instead of processed foods. It's about reducing your food waste. Wasted food means actually a a lot of wasted water. And maybe most importantly, it is of course about not polluting the water. So for instance, not to throw food waste in the sink. No, instead you compost it or you don't throw medicine and chemicals and so on in the toilet or we take part in these cleanups that are being organized where people go out together and they clean up our rivers our lakes and our parks and so on or you can just simply start like some of us are doing to pick up some rubbish when you see it lying there in nature and importantly as well share in social media what you are doing in all these respects That's just some of the advice that's coming from the United Nations actually here today on the World Water Day. So think about that. What's your plan for today for World Water Day? And in the meanwhile, let's hear what's happening out in the world. Colin Market, what do you have for us today? Hello, Mick. And isn't it significant that on World Water Day, we've got the world's largest fish kill in our rivers, uh, just showing how much we have been looking after the waters of Australia. But this is the world roundup that I tend to concentrate on, not Australian conditions, which is just as well, really. Otherwise, we'd be here all day. 
And our global roundup begins this week in Europe, where there's a lot happening all at once, it seems. First, we'll go to Switzerland, where a company called Sunways has developed a method of rolling out solar panels like a long carpet between the rails on their railway tracks. The rollout is due to begin in May, and it's part of that country's looking for new ways to develop clean energy using unusual surfaces. We'll keep an eye on this because it has potential for use around the world, most especially for Australia. The solar panels are uh, rolled out like carpet on the front of a special train that could be fitted throughout the entire nation's network, excepting tunnels, of course, and it has the potential to create 2% of Switzerland's energy. Still in Europe, in what's described as a coordinated attack, more than 400 billboards and bus stops all across Europe were hijacked this weekend by activists. The billboards are in Belgium, France, Germany and England, and they highlight misleading adverts and aggressive lobbying tactics used by two companies, which is Toyota and BMW. And the, uh, the people who are holding the, uh, who, who carried out what is really a very clever campaign, uh, their brandalism and extinction rebellion. Uh, this is their way of, uh, if you like, going back against strengthened laws, strengthened protest laws around the world. And what they've done, essentially, is that they've found the soft adverts from BMW and Toyota, and they've changed them very cleverly using artists and graphic designers. What they say is that both manufacturers, although they're emphasising their electric vehicles, they are still heavily invested in selling polluting combustion engine vehicles. And that's the purpose of their current soft sell campaigns, which show four-wheel drive vehicles with slogans like Just Enjoy. The protesters have left the adverts in place, but they've changed the wording. Instead of saying Just Enjoy, they'll say things like Let's Ruin Everything. Or they'll show a Toyota Land Cruiser renamed as Toyota's Land Crusher with the slogan of Dominate Life. It's a very clever, innovative way of protesting. And again, we can keep an eye because I'm sure that other groups around the world are going to be adopting this method. Now to Canada, where a report from the CBC has found that climate change anxiety is crippling Canada's youth. Nearly half of all young Canadians think that the human race is doomed to failure, according to a new study that was published in the Journal of Climate Change and Health. Young people, when they were responding to a question, is humanity doomed, they essentially answered yes, and named climate change as the problem that most affected their outlook. The survey found that a majority of young Canadians were scared. 76% of them found the future frightening and nearly half thought that the whole of humanity is doomed. Nearly 80% said that worrying about climate change affected their overall mental health and four out of 10 of them said it was taking a daily toll on their well-being. It was held by a couple of universities in Canada, and it was a paper that surveyed a 1,000 Canadians aged between 16 to 25 
right across the nation. And the results largely replicated a smaller global study from last year that looked at climate change anxiety across 10 countries, of which Canada was excluded. So they decided to hold their own, but bigger ones. Now, back to World Water Day that you told us about, there is a report in The Guardian which warned that the world is facing an imminent water crisis, with demand of water expected to outstrip the supply of fresh water by 40% by the end of this decade. Now, this is on the eve of a crucial UN water summit. The report warned that the government must urgently stop subsidising the extraction and overuse of water throughout the world using misdirected agricultural subsidies and industries from mining to manufacturing to rice growing must be made to overhaul their wasteful practices. Nations must start to manage water as a global common good because most countries are highly dependent on their neighbours for water supply and overuse, pollution and the climate crisis threaten water supplies globally, the report's authors say. The lead author, is a scientist, Joan Rochstrom, said that the world's neglect of water resources was leading to disaster. The scientific evidence is that we have a water crisis, he said. We're misusing water, polluting water and changing the whole global hydrological cycle through what we're doing to the climate. It's a triple crisis, he warned. And this brings us to California, where they have experienced a winter of severe wet storms and floods in the north of the state that's seen 22 people die and predictions of more floods to come over the next three weeks. Now, this follows the state's driest three years on record, and the extreme and sudden shift between dry and wet is characteristic of the changes that global warming is projected to bring across the world, and most certainly in the state. The UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain said the most recent historically wet year was 2017, and that was also preceded by what was then a record three-year dry spell. He said, we've seen two historically severe droughts in the past decade, and now it appears that we've seen two historically wet winters in the same decade. This is really just playing into the notion that we're likely to see both more precipitation and hydroclimate whiplash in California as the climate warms. To Europe again, where one of my favourite politicians, President Ursula von der Leyen, announced a new net zero industry act to scale up the manufacturing of clean technologies in the EU and make sure that the union is well equipped for the clean energy transition. This initiative is part of the EEC's Green Deal industrial plan, and it will strengthen the resilience and competitiveness of net zero technologies manufacturing in the EU and make its energy system more secure and sustainable. It will create better conditions to set up net zero projects throughout Europe, she said. We need a regulatory environment that allows us to scale up the clean energy transition quickly, she said. The Net Zero Industry Act will do just that. It will create the best conditions for these sectors that are crucial for us to reach net zero by 2050. Technologies like wind turbines, heat pumps, solar panels, 
Demand is growing in Europe and globally, and we are acting now to make sure we can meet this demand uh, throughout Europe and with the correct amount of supply. They aren't doing very much, though, for our um, the world's greenest football club, Forest Green Rovers, which sits at the bottom of the English First Division. The men's side played Plymouth Argyle at the weekend, who are second in the table, and the result was quite predictable, with Rovers losing 2-0. Their women's team didn't play this week, so I can't bring you any good news from there, so I'll just say that's my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Now, we've got, as always, we've got two uh, guests on today. The first one is Shane Howard. Now, many of our listeners would know Shane as the leader of Goanna Band, Spirit of Place and all that. And, you know, that was many years ago, but he's still singing, still a performer. But what uh, people don't know so much about Shane maybe is that he is very active in uh, local activities down his way at near Colony Beach where he lives. And uh, Shane, welcome to the Sustainable Hour. Hi there, Anthony, everyone. And listens. Yeah. Now, Shane, tell us about your, what do you do when you're not um, writing songs uh, and singing? Well, basically, I try to stave off um, the overwhelming depression, as uh, Colin articulated, <laughs> about the dire state of the planet. I mean, you know, if I go back to the Franklin River campaign back in 1983, um, I'd say the two pillars of my work as an artist have been about Aboriginal justice, but also deeper than that, Aboriginal thinking and Indigenous thinking, really, in that sense. And the other one, the other great pillar really has been uh, environmental justice. And, you know, I think it was Kurt Vonnegut who said, um, we'll go down in, in history as not being able to uh, avoid extinction because it wasn't cost effective. You know, and that kind of, I think that kind of is at the heart of the absurdity of the reality we find ourselves in. And we'll, like as Colin said, why our youth right around the world and uh, suit with our own mind children, uh, this sense of impending doom that um, they don't feel they have the power and they feel that their future is being... Um, stolen from them in a way. Uh, it, it's If you're looking at this situation that we find ourselves in from another planet or from a distance, you'd be struck by the absurdity, really, that, um, like Vonnegut says, you know, it's just not cost-effective to avoid extinction. So this is the madness we find ourselves in. I mean, you know, if I go right back to 1983 and the Franklin River, that was the beginning, really, that campaign was the beginning of Australia's environmental movement. Uh, it was a global movement. It was uh, goes right back to um, the Greens that emerged out of Germany uh, and Petra Kelly, who, was, who died suspiciously, never got really to the bottom of um, her demise. Um, there are very powerful forces at work that see profit and greed as more important than avoiding extinction, and uh, Colin articulated that. And I think inevitably that's at the heart of what the environmental catastrophe that we find ourselves hurtling towards 
is inevitably about laissez-faire capitalism, and I don't think that's avoidable. Um, that's at the heart of our problem, and inevitably that comes down to greed. How do we change human nature? I don't know, but um, one of the things I learned in my journey was that for 65,000 years and possibly more, Aboriginal people lived on this continent. They reshaped the continent through fire management and created their own impacts as well. But uh, they survived as a sustainable and on the, the longest continuous culture and spirituality on, on the planet. Um, I'm reminded of my friend in Milingimbi, Tony Bachu, who told me about his father who uh, had tree dreaming and was a deeply cultural man. So this is about connection, deep connection to a way of being. And he would not even, because of that tree dreaming, because he has responsibilities and ancestral connections, he would not even break a dead branch off a tree for firewood, only what had fallen to the ground. I mean, it sounds extreme to us, but this is why Aboriginal people survived for 65,000 years, because of that, the other missing quotient, which is spirituality, which is a way of being on the planet and a way of being in the earth. Every breath, every footstep, everything we do has to be measured in some kind of entropic sense. Um, we're not going back to hunter-gathering yet, unless we're forced there, but um, but there are really important values that Indigenous societies bring to a way of being on the planet that I, I think we've all got a lesson to learn from. I'm really interested in that. How on earth can we move from this situation to one where we can look to the future with confidence? Uh, well, that's um, that's a big question um, for a small little person like myself, but... But um, I guess, you know, the old slogan in the 70s and 80s, Colin, uh, think global, act local. Um, we can't, you know, most of us are not empowered to affect uh, global or national events. But And that's very much been the reality here. I mean, just a very small thing, getting involved even in land care groups, planting trees, um, whatever small actions we can do, make a contribution. Bill Mollison, who was the, the old father, the late Bill Mollison, who was the father of permaculture in Australia, said there's no way we can possibly win, but we have to. And, you know, we have children and grandchildren or whatever. Um, we have to believe that there is, um, that we can draw ourselves back from, from the precipice. And, you know, um, a little example here just in our own backyard you know, one day we found that, you know, 160 to 200 race horses turned up on our local beach unannounced and started training and turned the beach into a ploughed field along a whole stretch of beaches here. Um, my friend Bill came and alerted me, he said, have you seen what's happening? I went down and had a look. We were pretty shocked at, and we thought, gee, the council need to be made aware of this. We went to the council, our local council, and said, do you realise there's all these horses? They're ploughing. The, it's dangerous to, for people. They're ploughing the whole area up. We have endangered hooded plovers and nesting birds on the beaches, all sorts of um, environmental considerations. There, there's areas of cultural sensitivity, uh, midden sites and Aboriginal sensitivity, um, burial sites. 
And uh, when we went to the council, uh, the mayor said to us, um, when we raised the alarm, he said, what's your compromise position? And, and we realised immediately that this was a done deal without any consultation with the community at all. We went to the state government then and they had a community consultation with us. And we realised after we'd had the community consultation with the state government, they'd done no more than lip service. They had already made the decision and made it look like they were consulting with the community, with us. Um, but they'd already formulated an, an opinion because you have a gambling industry, the racing industry, the two major political parties, Labor and Liberal, are already invested in this world. Um, a huge amount of the public are invested in this. It was very hard to get traction on the matter. Um, it's a long, a long story. It took us five or six years of fighting to stop that industrial-scale practice. And there's a lot of factors involved. But, you know, it basically, for us as volunteers, became a full-time job. For a large group of, of people, we had to invest an enormous amount of energy to just protect those little hooded plovers, the orange-bellied parrots, all, all those shorebirds that rely on that area, and human safety and cultural sensitivity. Um, but at the heart of it, it went back to respect for country and this way of thinking that we have to shift all of us, white fellows, all of us around the world, we're not detribalized that long. You know, we are not that far removed from living a much more, a life that is much more sensitive to the land and the country that we're on and that we rely on for, to sustain ourselves. Harari says that you know, humans are no more intelligent now than they were 100,000 years ago. Um, and he talks in terms of the Faustian bargain we made when we stopped being hunter-gatherers and became agrarians. And effectively, we got, we achieved food security, but we lost food diversity and that sense of connection to country by becoming agrarians. He basically says that we were colonised by potatoes, corn, rice, you know, the starches of the world. They colonised us and they were very successful at it, actually. It's a very multi-pronged way of, I, I'm casting a big net here, but talking about little local things that, you know, the little local things that we can do to look after our own little patch of country and to see that it's respected. Um, it means shifting the way we live. It means coming back down off the mountain that we built that probably starts with our agrarian behaviour um, that became, that is now developed into, you know, um, monoculture farming. And so that kind of sense, which is beginning to unfold around the world of, you know, and the extreme of that, I guess, is rewilding and those sorts of things that are happening even in the UK and places like that. Um, that sense of being able to, um, Edward Wilson, you know, talked about setting aside half the earth as wild country to to make sure that we keep those um, st stable aspects that protect our climate to keep them from collapsing altogether. Um, I think every... Every 1.5 degrees of warming gives us an extra 10% of rain. 
And, you know, we're beginning to see that already. Sheer evaporation just creates precipitation. So we're starting to see the impacts of that, not just as one in 100-year events or 50-year events, but almost as annual or biennial events. I ran into a, an Antarctic scientist recently um, locally, and he was telling me he'd done 15 or 16 trips in the Antarctic. He was a, a, an old man now, and he talked about the fact that the undermelting that's starting to happen now in Antarctica, and it looks like there's not a lot going on, but he said the melt that's happening underneath will in inevitably lead to massive ice sheet collapses, and these things can happen quite quickly. Add to that the fact that um, the capacity, as you mentioned, Colin, for protest is being shut down in Tasmania. Um, all across the country, the ability to be civilly disobedient in a peaceful way is being corralled. It's no wonder as our youth feel a sense of helplessness and that the issues are so big. You know, like in 1983, it was the Franklin River campaign was to save a wild river, one of the last great wild rivers. Um, this is now the entire planet and we still have 19th century thinking at a political level. Nation states don't even make sense anymore. The United Nations have no teeth. Um the big countries have the power of veto over lots of consequential decisions. I mean, really, the United Nations should be, and David Suzuki talked about this in the 90s, you know, about a supreme order of the biosphere, you know, that should really be ruling um, the way we behave globally. There should be legal structures that are uh, universal because what one nation does in a carbon dioxide reality uh, impacts everyone. So to think that we can go on with this kind of crazy colonial mindset we had in the 19th century of nation states is actually a really important aspect of tackling as well, making sure we have global structures. Um, I know with my own children, the young ones and grandchildren, um, they don't see any validity in nation states. They, they're playing video games with kids across the world you know, and what we're seeing in the Ukraine and Russia is is, is emblematic of this old colonial thinking. Um, so there's lots of structural things that are way beyond our capacity to change, but um, nothing more powerful than an idea, though, too. Exactly. And, you know, something that reminds us of that is that about 250 years ago, there was an author who wrote a book he was living in a world where slavery was completely normal. There was slavery everywhere. And he could not imagine that slavery would ever stop. How would it be possible to stop slavery? He could not imagine it. And he wrote a whole book about that it would never stop. 50 years later, slavery was stopped. Mm. And that was because of ideas. And in a way, you know, we live right now, we live in a world, as you say, it's about money, it's about power. It, the, the real crazy part is to watch our government being able to find these $386 billion to finance some submarines to defend us against, you know, the forces out there, while they can't find out how to fund what we need to defend ourselves against our climate oh, no. falling a, a, apart with flooding and people dying as, as we watch it on TV screens every night. It's, it's madness. And on top of that, that pollution that's coming out of our cars and so on is killing 
11,000 Australians every year. And our politicians, what are they doing? Mm. It's about money. It's about power. Always has been. And the 19th century thinking of politicians goes back to the energy providers. Uh, I'm astonished, to be quite honest, that I find myself in the uh, second decade of the 21st century and we're still using power. We're personally not, but uh, the majority of us are using power that is 19th century technology. It's burning coal to make steam to turn a turbine. Uh, and that was that was going back to the 1880s that came up with that. Now, I don't know if you just know, while I was listening to you, Shane, uh, I was thinking through and I was taking on board what you were saying. And basically what you're saying is what the best thing we can do for the future is, is to just get the word out, keep what we're doing, get the word out and let people know. And uh, earlier this year, I was awarded the OAM, which was slightly embarrassing because I'm not the sort of person that they usually give it to. So I haven't bothered with putting it at the end of my name or anything, except that I have noticed that it does get me a lot more respect and listens to a lot more because they think to themselves, oh, this old geezer might have something of interest. So I've put my OAM on my Zoom thing there. I just did that while you were talking because if people are going to listen more because I've got an OAM, I'm not going to change the message. The message is still we have to modernise, we have to look at the future, we have to put the environment at the top of the list on every decision that we make. Simple as that. It's maybe it's not just the politicians that have nineteenth century thinking. Maybe it's it's the so-called progressives as well. And you know, we're talking about one percent of the population that are causing all the damage. So that means 99% don't want that to happen. And that's not reflected in any way in any of the um, the protests or the letters to the editor or anything like that that we see each day. And that's, that's how we, we get the power back, is not accepting the power structure at the moment that has caused this to happen. I, I actually love this new protest that occurred at the weekend throughout Europe. It's mm. using the tools that capitalism itself uses. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're selling us really unnecessary large vehicles uh, and to do so to make a profit. And then we're using exactly the same images, or the protesters are using exactly the same images and the same soft technology to put across the um, the viewpoint to people that this is damaging to all of us and we should stop it. And I love that. That's using our intelligence. You're talking about the repurposing of those billboards, Colin. Exactly, yep. Yeah, um, we have to be uh, work smarter, not harder. Mm. And the other, the other big thing that governments are not talking about is consumption. Yeah, moving to renewable technology is noble, but but there's no discussion about maybe reducing our consumption in the process. And yeah, you know, this is um, you know we've yeah you know, we've gone to solar you know, to LED lighting, and we've been able to reduce consumption in that regard. I mean, even by doing this Zoom call, but I think when you Google anything, it's it pretty much the equivalent of boiling a kettle in terms of power consumption. 
there's um there's we have to interrogate every aspect of uh, the way we live. Um, most people don't. Most of us are kind of getting around. And like you said, you've got this concentration of wealth now to the boomer generation. Like you said, by an accident almost of being able to buy modest housing. It's happening all around the country where young people are never going to be able to find a way, even in a little local town here. Um, housing prices have become so expensive, young people can't afford to buy into that market, even in little country towns. And what's happening now is that the people who are well superannuated and have been able to sell their other houses and buy into these more expensive places and raise the property values now can't find young people to work in the shops. <laughs> so um, we have created a kind of slave class, but we can't afford to keep them. This is the largest airplane ever to fly on hydrogen fuel cells. It's a flight test platform for the first ever commercial plane to run on sunshine and emit nothing but water. You'll be able to take a hydrogen regional flight on a plane like this one as early as 2025, using a fuel cell electric engine in place of the conventional kerosene burning one, for a safer, more affordable and guilt-free flying experience. We bring green hydrogen to airports and directly into the airplane using modular capsules which can be transported using existing freight infrastructure. So most airports in the world are hydrogen ready. This fueling approach works for larger airplanes also, which could be flying with hydrogen burning jet engines by the mid-2030s. In fact, they have to be, or else start reducing traffic volumes to meet global emissions targets. There just isn't another choice. For me, it was really important to get the technology in flight as soon as possible and start to expose it to the challenges that it's going to see in real life. We have a brilliant team working on this project. In one year, we've gone from a standard Dash A300 to by far the largest aircraft ever to be flown with hydrogen fuel cells. What's motivating is proving that we can fly something which most people have told us is impossible. It's always a challenge to do things that everybody tells you can't be done. Australia, are you ready to switch off and take time out for nature? This Earth Hour, let's take a moment to appreciate all the benefits that nature provides us and work together to turn this to this. Whether it's 60 seconds, 60 minutes, or beyond the hour, we can all take time out for nature. And to help you take time out, sign up for Earth Hour for your chance to win a dream wilderness escape. Hello, our other guest today is Ellen Taylor. Ellen is a sustainable, sustainability-focused leadership and team coach. She's experienced in team development and growth in sustainable innovation and software development, all those areas. He's founder of 3P Impact and co-convener of the Climate Coaching Alliance for Australia and New Zealand. So tell us about what's up front for you at the moment, what's the most important thing? Is it 3P impact? Hey, great. Thanks, Tony. Um, yeah, so I, I set the, my business up late last year after growing a lot of awareness of so much of the stuff that is happening around the world and what the opportunities are for us all to play a part. 
how we can move that dial. And I'm just going to jump back to, to where Shane was talking about, but go and it, because it's awareness. I'm currently reading a book called Dark Emu, which to me, folks may know. And um, see if you're nodding heads. And it's amazingly insightful. It's a good example of where if we start to understand a little bit more about what the, for those on the show who don't know the, the book, it's around the Aboriginal lifestyle and, and management of land. Maybe somebody can add to that. But I'm just, I'm just in the first section about land management at the moment. And it's so insight, it's inspiring, it's insightful. And it goes against that view that we have at the moment of how Aboriginal was living, managing the land that's commonly held. And, and it's built, it's about being open, being willing to, and that, and this is a theme that goes through my work. It's, it's like, we've got to be open to understanding, oh, that's one perspective. What's the other one? And let's learn about it. And as uh, as Colin talked about earlier, the, the impact of it at the moment is huge on, you know, the climate change anxiety that's happening in the workforce and, and Gen Zs. They can't employ them. You know, companies have sometimes not been able to employ people because of this. So here is the beginning of an opportunity with all of that information around um, where the problems are and lack of engagement in the workforce. Another thing Shane talked about is like get people involved, you know, get get that awareness broader. If we can broaden that way, and so I'm bringing it into the corporate world. If we get that awareness in the corporate world, understanding of what our connection to it is, and realize that hey, if we get everybody on board, we can actually do a lot more. Then we've we've got opportunities for everybody. And however much I agree with so much about the problems with capitalism. It is the mechanism we're working in. And as with any change mechanism, we need to think, how can we find a way to slowly adapt and change? And actually back to the, the um, slavery example, that's, a, that's an example. It's, that's where we are. That's where we believe. So let's move. So key things for me last year was, well, about 18 months ago, I started, a, I was working in, as collaborating in the Climate Coaching Alliance, which is a global community, purely voluntary community. And through that, I met a few other coaches who were wanting to do research into how can we embody this in, in training programs for organizations. So that was sort of fired off by various pieces of information, obviously insight, the sorts of things you guys have been talking about. But also one of the guys did a research, uh, his own survey, a global survey, and he found that 85% of employees thought that there was no overarching engagement in them in doing something. Well, that's 85% of people can't be involved, don't think they're involved. Wow, um, isn't that a lost opportunity? 75% of employees are having no or occasional conversations. Yes, yeah, so that means if they're not having conversations about climate, that means they're completely out of the loop. They're not even involved. Again, we're missing opportunities to engage people to be part of the solution. Um, and actually, of talking to a friend who's in the um, in the construction industry here, he was saying that he's not, he's not hearing it even now, you know, in his office, often there's a fear of raising it because of various factors. Sometimes it's, I'm expected to be an expert, but I'm not. So I'm not going to even talk about it. That's so counterproductive where we don't even feel safe doing that. And the metrics came, you know, 95% of them would love to be more involved. That's a massive percentage which are not getting involved and could be. So we've got this opportunity. And so what we set up is our mission. And we've, like, we believe that our, for organizations to create a cultural shift 
the sort of thing we've just been talking about, such that there's a bottom line, the actual dollars can be grown, um, and therefore climate can demonstrably be managed well within organisations if they adapt their education methods to catalyse a mindset shift, supported by leaders creating and demonstrating the change themselves. To put that into concrete terms, how does 3P impact help that in commerce, in business? So when I set my business up, I was focusing on um, how can I take that program that we ran as a research pilot last year? How can I bring that into organizations? And what that program's about, and so basically I take a similar version of what we use for a research program. And I've reframed it and, and adjusted and adapted it for every client as they need. What we, um, so when I use we, I'm talking about we as the researchers. When I talk about I, I'm talking about me and 3P Impact because I'm sole trader. Is where we design the program is to build awareness of what our personal values are. Why do we actually want that, that ground crushing, um, Toyota Land Cruiser. Ah, it's because we want to see nature. Ah, good. So now I'm realizing my values are nature. Actually, I don't want to destroy it. I want it to still be there because I want my kids to be able to do the same. We start to help people understand where their own values are, and that's at organization level. So working with organization, getting that alignment and connection to nature, and then taking people through a program where they enable we help them or i help help them as, as my own business and in my day job to help them self-realize where that connection builds how they can use that more effectively and how they can actually become better versions of themselves and collaborate and use a lot of soft skills with everybody a lot better is that similar to the services that b corp provide um, well, B Corp is, is a governance structure for organizations around their financial management and their connection to how they manage um, their impact on the environment. I'm offering a, a program in this context. I'm offering a program which helps them actually embed that culture within an organization. So that can be anybody. The organizations we use, so I, I just... If I go to, to the case study that we're, we're sharing this year, so I'm talking, I'm hoping to get into a few conferences this year. I know my colleagues have done around the world. Um, what we found was that we, we ran two sets of tests. Some, as always, a control group. They did standard learning, climate awareness. What is climate literacy? What is carbon, you know, carbon impact? Great. We then ran another group or two groups of each through a learning program, through learning through self-realization through connection to nature, different things like visualization of things. And we used a program around awareness, meaning, awareness, and purpose. We did a survey on using what's called the inner development goals. These, this is a framework which is set up by a lot of top psychologists around the world um, aligned to achieving the sustainable de development goals. We did that survey before the program at the end of the training or the program, and also again a few months later. These are these are soft skills, things like connection to yourself, thinking collaboratively and cognitively. What is that problem? How can I look at it in different ways? Relating to people and culture, 
all these sorts of soft skills which enabled us to move to action. We found that the people who did the, the, um, the training alone had no change in their cognitive view of those sorts of skills months after the program. The people who went through, obviously we're talking averages, but the people who we took through our program with a coach, self-coached facilitated learning program approach had roughly a 10% increase in their ability to connect with nature, to move to action instead of, you know, it's that intent to action move. It was massive. That's a huge change. And that was through just a simple, small version of what organizations can instill. Instead of just sending somebody on a course, change that style to be involved in it. Action learning, as we call it. And we saw that massive change. And so where I bring that into a corporate thing, in environment is, well, if you want to engage your, your staff to be part of the solution, to be able to think differently and solve problems better, to be able to go into a situation where, oh, I'm not working that well with these people. How can I think differently to overcome those barriers? These are where we saw massive changes. And so doing that at the corporate level, I would like to be involved in helping more and more organizations bring that. So, Alan, are you working with the management as well? Because it appears to me you're talking about the employees, the staff, and that's all great. But what about the management? Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic question. Yes, we've got to start at them. We've got to start as high as possible. Because if we don't get that, what we end up with is conflict. We get mental conflict. It's like, oh, we're being told to do this helpful stuff, or we're being helped to do it, but I can't. Well, if we've got management visibly, consciously buying into this, which is where I start, then yeah, you can then enable um, that mindset shift. And we saw that in that program last year, and obviously working with people here now, but this is early. Um, We had people who were suddenly, one small group changed um, the whole company's action. They had, I forgot what they called it, an action day or something globally. This little group went, nah, you know what? We're only a small group at the bottom of the chain, but we think we've got some great ideas here. Why don't we call it climate day, climate action day? So there's a focus on something specific. They had, because of this mindset shift where they could now take out themselves out of this barrier that is mentally built around us naturally. These guys were able to go to the upper management and they changed the whole company's name for that that event to Sustainability Day. And there's an example of how we can achieve a lot more when we're thinking differently and able to um, open ourselves up to to collaborate. And when you see that happening in organizations on a big scale, got some massive wins. So, Alan, are you seeing any collaboration between companies and companies looking at their supply chains? Um, not the work I'm doing at the moment, um, unfortunately, but that's just the nature of where I am. Um, I'm certainly hearing about it. Um, I attended a conference last year where you mentioned the B Corp, but there's also various other B things. There's the B Team, which is founded by Richard Branson. Um, I had a presentation there about a lot of the, um, it Lion Breweries, actually, it's public, public knowledge. Um, they looked at their, their carbon footprint from their supply chain. And they had all of their collaborators, all of the people in the supply chain, um, participating collaboratively to overcome that. And so I would love to be involved, and I'm looking forward to being involved in more of that as we go forward. But it takes time. I'd just like to say, Alan, just responding to something you responded to before, is I'd make a clear distinction between capitalism and laissez-faire capitalism, mm. which is anything goes, which is like, just do it, yeah? 
just do whatever needs to be done. Um, and one of the rules, I guess, that is really important to apply in if we are to shift our thinking is, I know how many are we now, 7 billion people in the world, you know, every time we go to consume something, really applying, and this applies at a corporate or a personal level, really, is um, can 7 billion people afford to buy this? And what impact does that have on the world? Now, that's hard in a, in a capitalist world because it is driven by consumption. So we we come to a, a the pointy end of the stick there too where we go, well, how do we come back down off the consumption mountain? And that's very hard because all our modelling in our capitalist corporate world is, a, is predicated on these tricky areas. Are these conversations that um, enterprises are having, having? I think what... I like about involving as many people as possible as we can bring all the different approaches and the different things. So reducing consumption. There's also a lot of corporates are thinking about, um, obviously not not enough of them, is also thinking about the cyclical supply chain. You know, even if we're consuming it, if it goes back into the supply chain, at least we haven't gone a one-way journey, which we've historically been doing. Um, So yeah, corporations are looking at all of them. And I think, where and it's part of the the, the naming of my brand is 3p impact it's, it's the triple triple bottom line people planet and profit doesn't necessarily have to be a loss and if we can encourage people to go and organizations to go well actually how can we reduce that consumption how can we reduce that waste how can we recycle better and ultimately save money save effort save the environment save everything and still make some money and still that's uh, where i think we have an opportunity to to overcome that. But changing whole behaviours and buying, no, I don't think we're going to do that too easily yet. It's about having a bit of, uh, as, as we've talked about, respect and, and decency, right. isn't it? Yes, we can make profit, but it's got to be decent. It can't be just that sort of greedy thing where we destroy something and just close our eyes to it. Absolutely. And I, I saw it. I was informed only a, only a couple of days ago about a, a beautiful case study of a company called Interface. It's a US um, US owned uh, carpet company that does carpeting in, in corporate spaces. Um, and they started. They had this realization back in 1994, and they've been on their long journey. Um, from, driven from the CEO who's now passed away, but he set the vision and the culture in that organization so strong that it's continued well after he, he left. Yeah, that's an example where they've, they've gone from massive, I saw the graphs and data of, of what they've got, and they've gone from massive waste, massive throwaway, massive landfill, to now they're carbon neutral, apparently. Mm. And, and the story of the CEO of Patagonia, who decides to really give away his company so that the profits made in the in the company from there on will go to projects that help the planet. Yeah, and they give us hope. These examples give us hope. Yeah. And there's the small groups like Geelong Renewables, not gas, and uh, groups all over the world are receiving grants from them to you know to to sustain their fight against fossil fuel projects. So, yeah, many people are benefiting from it from that approach. I can't remember exactly when it was that we changed from being customers to becoming consumers. 
but there's no doubt that we are consumers now. And when I talk about consumers, I don't just mean that we're buying things in supermarkets. We're consuming ideologies. We're consuming everything. Just because we're ratepayers, we're consuming um, the product of the council, if you like. And basically, as consumers of, oh, it's, it's all just a, a small pixel, if you like, of a lifestyle that we do. And if we just keep that in mind on everything, that we are a consumer and we put the message across to the people that we're consuming from, that we expect them to respect the environment and we expect them to uh, meet our demands of looking after people and the planet then the message will come out and go out. You can actually change it from the bottom, if you like, from the consuming position. If the information is there, and that, that feeds back, like you were saying, Alan, um, that at that large corporate level that there is a cyclic chain, that what is consumed is then repurposed and, um, you know, and... I guess the big challenge for our era, you know, in the 50s and 60s, plastic was going to be the miracle, mm-hmm. the miracle thing that was going to make our lives so much better. And and in many ways it, it did for a time. But, you know, at Port Ferry now we have, uh, and right across their migratory journey, the, um, the shearwaters are being found dead in large numbers ostensibly due to the consumption of plastic. So it's said that when, um, should the an alien civilization find us, you know, a million years from now, they will find a, our anthropogenic era will be um, documented by a very thin film of plastic all around the planet. Um, you know, that's going to be our legacy. Um, you know, so they're, they're small examples of like... Um, Bad decision making along the way, without without a, a real sense of consequence, or in the in many cases, um, often with an understanding of the negative impacts, but proceeding anyway. So, I, I think as you were saying, Mick, the the importance of decency, the importance of responsible decision making, um, they're pretty simple human qualities, you know, and it's. Um, it's actually a conscious decision to not go down a Machiavellian path, which is um, just get whatever you can, like the Roman Empire, just take it, it's yours, you know, get what you can while you can. This is a bigger discussion about a whole awakening of a global consciousness. And just for me personally, that's come about the thing that most confronted my thinking because we've all grown up in a Western way of thinking, which is predicated by Socrates and Plato, binary dualism, oppositional thinking. Aboriginal Australia and Aboriginal cosmology confronted everything I knew. I thought I was a pretty enlightened person, but I found myself, when my journey really began in earnest in my 20s into Aboriginal Australia, and that's been an ever-deepening journey, um, I had to reconfigure my thinking and it's changed me enormously and continues to do so. You know, if um, if I if I have a, of a particular moiety, say I'm Jungler, is my moiety in a desert community, um, and I have $50, then all those 
all my brothers in who are jungler, we have that $50 between us. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not socialism. It's not communism. It's probably communalism. It's a very different way of thinking. And I would say that the thing that is going to save us is that kind of Aboriginal and Indigenous cosmological thinking about one respect for everything we do and to respect a diminishing of the ego not not a, a not obliterating the ego that's important too for example i might be the guy who went out and hunted and caught the kangaroo today and we take it back to camp and we all have a big feed i might be the last one to be fed but the story will be told then about how i caught the kangaroo and that lifts my sense of self-esteem. Um, but I don't necessarily benefit directly as the owner of that. Uh, of that. It, it's, it's ways of thinking, I think, that Indigenous thinking has to bring to our, our predominantly uh, Western way of thinking that's dominated the earth and uh, had this concept of domination that will probably bring about, I think, will help us really open our, our minds to a different way of seeing the world. There, there are great things. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are incredible things that are that we have done and achieved from that Western way of thinking. Um, but I think Indigenous thinking, which we all had once and uh, before the Industrial Revolution, whatever, and agrarianism, but it has a contribution to make to us a really important contribution. I think there's a synthesis that can happen as we go forward as a people as a world that can really um give us a new way of being yeah it's, and it's beautiful and that's where we want to be and certainly the inner development goals obviously they're not they're not going to be a one-to-one -one translation to what you're saying of course but they are um they are the a psychological framework um which centers on those things and it includes collaboration and caring for each other and thinking about how we can work together to do that. So um, that's certainly a direction that corporates are starting along that journey relatively early on it. But again, I take hope in everything I see and what I'm trying to do. Um, and the Climate Coaching Alliance, which obviously is beginning of my journey to get where I am, that's got to 3,000 people in just over two years globally. Um, and they're thinking on the same sort of mindset as well as all of the other groups. So I think there's hope. I think there's a possibility that that will go that way, but it's going to be a long journey. Yeah, well, even when the situation seems hopeless, don't give up. It's amazing what, as Margaret Mead said, never think that a small, dedicated group of people can't change the world because inevitably that's how it's happened. Well, that is how change occurs, isn't it? Thank you very much, both you, Alan, and Shane. This hour has been a journey in itself, hasn't it? Uh, we've come from the despair and, and the anxiety and, and all the problems as we see them, moved through the discussions of power and ended up in a really peaceful and hopeful place. Mm. And I love the word you introduced to us, Shane. Reconfiguration. Reconfiguring our minds. Be the reconfiguration. <laughs> Live the difference. Be the difference I know the world's gone mad It's true Be the difference 
Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Watching